0: Welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chica Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Friday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the richness of sacred scripture. This second Sunday of Ordinary Time affords us the opportunity to get back into the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where we will hear about the calling of the initial disciples. And we will also have the opportunity to reflect upon this great title of the Lamb of God and the significance of the Lamb. So, really, there will be two points of emphasis for us this evening. First, the encounter and the calling of the initial disciples, uh, specifically to John, I would say. And then, also, uh, we will take stock in the title, the Lamb of God. So, with that, let us just jump right in. I will be flying solo this evening Again, if you have any questions for me that come not only from what we talk about this evening, but just any question generally about the Christian and Catholic faith, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org and just go to the contact link, and you can reach me there. So, okay, with that, if you want to pull out your Bibles and go to John chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 35 42. John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter." Mm. So here we have this first meeting, this first encounter. (laughs) It is an, an incredible thing to me to think about how these initial encounters must have been embedded into the memory of the apostles. That first meeting with Jesus isn't fascinating to think that he knew the exact time of day. It was about four in the afternoon, the 10th hour, huh? You know, John was probably writing this as an old man, but the memory of it must have been so fresh as when it first happened. Why this meeting was so decisive for his whole life. In other words, there was a very clear before and after about it, huh? And have we not experienced this on some level? Have we not been asked, if you are married out there, (laughs) how did you first meet? And is it not so easy to talk into the finest detail of that first time when we saw our future spouses? How many of us have regaled groups about how we first met our spouse? Think about it. Why? Because there was a very clear before and after about it. There was something decisive after you first fixed your eyes on your future beloved, okay? This is what's going on here, but we could say, in light of the encounter with Christ, something exponentially more. Why? Because it is our heart's deepest yearning to have that encounter. So, what happened in these first hours spent with Jesus? gives these first few disciples a new direction to their life. But I want to take up specifically John and ask the question, how did this come about? Huh? I mean, next Sunday we will read how Mark, who is going to stay with us throughout this year, depicts the calling of Jesus's first followers. Among them was John. In his own gospel. He does not say anything about this calling, but he does recount his very first meeting with Jesus, right? Okay, this is what we're talking about now. That is even more important to him. It is, so to speak, one of the secrets of his heart. So what can we say about John? Well, John, a fisherman by trade, as was Andrew, belonged to the group of disciples around the Baptist. Certainly we could say fascinated by the ascetic's convincing lifestyle and by his teaching, which spoke directly to them, they had joined up with the Baptist to take part in, in his, we could say, school of life. The Baptist, however, had always made it clear to them that he was only preparing the way for someone else, right? This was his, his life's vocation, and that he would not want to stand in that person's way. So he let them both go when they followed Jesus so as to know more about him. And how about that exchange? That we just read. What do you seek? Where are you staying? The importance of asking a question. What do you seek? Now, you have heard me say on numerous occasions, we find in the gospel text Christ asking one question after another. Often, when he's asked a question, he responds to the question with a question. Why? Well, because he is rabbi. He is master teacher. He knows. That to answer a question with the question is the best way of getting the person who's asking the question to take ownership of what they are actually asking. Okay, this is what a rabbi does. And so here we have our Lord, rabbi, master, teacher, asking a question. What do you seek? And their response, where are you staying? Something must have taken place in that moment. You know, it's a fascinating thing if you were to go to the next few verses in the Gospel of John, when Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, What do we read? The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And in the next verse, now Philip, who was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, goes to Nathaniel and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says to him, what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what does Philip say? Come and see. Not see and come. Because faith precedes reason in the realm of faith and reason uh, specific to coming to know Jesus Christ. Come and see. And in that phrase and in those words, he is simply echoing Christ. Come and see. Mm. So the what do you seek? Where are you going? These are the first words that pass between Christ and those first followers, specifically, of course, John and Peter and Andrew. Nothing exciting, yet apparently unforgettable, because it was he who had looked at them and spoken to them and who from then on was the center of their lives. Everything turned on him. So they went with him and saw where he was staying and spent the rest of the day with him. It is a very strange thing, my friends, to think about this simple fact. There is not one word about what they saw or what they talked about. This is all the more surprising since John gives a fuller account than the other evangelists of Jesus' conversations and speeches. For John, the first meaning remained, we could say, his own secret. It was so precious to him that he kept it to himself that first encounter, he was the beloved disciple. He was the one who went to the cross. And I've got to imagine, my dear friends, when the beloved disciple, John the Evangelist, was at the foot of the cross, was he not thinking about that first encounter? Was he not thinking about the finest details of what he saw and who he saw and how his heart must have rejoiced at finally finding his heart's deepest longing, his heart's deepest desire? Is not that where we go when God calls us to a very unexpected place, a place that might have us endure suffering, trial, agony, and pain? Do we not go back to that initial encounter? I believe so. I hope so. By the grace of God, I hope so, because we need to lean on that encounter. Okay, that being said, John's experience and that of Andrew during those few hours must have been decisive. Okay, you know, in in a reading, you know, the next day, Andrew says to his brother Simon, whom Jesus would thereafter call Cephas, uh, Peter, which means rock, we have found the Messiah. Expressing this enthusiasm, expressing this joy out from that first encounter. See, this is what happens when you have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, especially that initial encounter with Jesus Christ. There is a joy that springs forth. We touched upon this a great deal during the Advent and Christmas season, did we not? Specifically to the Magi, to the wise men. There they are before the Lord. They have this encounter with God incarnate. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Huh? There is this kind of explosive enthusiasm that comes out from that personal encounter with Jesus Christ. This is what you have with Andrew here we have found him. We have found the Messiah. We have found the sum total of our heart's deepest longing. And so it is. John and Andrew had found the one for whom many of their people had been waiting. Andrew then did what is the most natural thing to do when anyone has been granted a meeting of decisive importance. He wants other people to share in this. So he took his brother Simon to see Jesus, and meeting Jesus was decisive for his whole life as well. Behold the Lamb of God. Lay your eyes on the Lamb of God. And isn't that an interesting phrase, the Lamb of God, huh? (laughs) The title almost seems comical in its inappropriateness, right? In uh, Dr. Scott Hahn's work, The Lamb's Supper, he reflects upon Uh, the Lamb, and and I'll draw from him a little bit because he offers up, I think, some important reflections, to the least of which he speaks to is this inappropriateness. I mean, what are we saying here? It would be one thing for John to say, behold the King of Kings, behold God, behold Savior, behold Lord, behold the Messiah, behold the priest, behold prophet, but the Lamb? There's nothing particularly strong, clever, quick, or we can even say handsome about the title, the Lamb of God. Certainly other animals would seem more worthy. Could we not easily imagine Jesus, for example, as the Lion of Judah? Lions are kingly. They're strong, agile. Nobody messes with the King of Beasts, as Dr. Hahn says. But the Lion of Judah makes only a cameo appearance in the book of Revelation. Meanwhile, the Lamb dominates, appearing no less than 28 times in the New Testament. The Lamb rules, occupying heaven's throne. It is the Lamb who leads an army of hundreds of thousands of men and angels striking fear in the hearts of the wicked in, in Revelation 6 verses 15 to 16. Not the Lion, but the Lamb. This last image of the fierce and frightening lamb is almost incongruous to imagine with a straight face. It doesn't make any sense. It is so unconventional. But this is the wisdom of God, you see, that the lamb of God, that the most fragile, innocent, and naive creature would become the most powerful. And certainly for John, (laughs) this matter of the lamb is serious. In fact, the word and or title lamb and lamb of God Is found almost exclusively in the books of John, specifically the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Uh, In in Acts we see Jesus like a lamb, but only John dare calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And, And what's important for us this evening is the first time we read of Jesus as the Lamb of God comes to us in today's verse. Behold the Lamb of God. Now what's significant to the Lamb of God? Well, to ancient Israel, the lamb was tied to sacrifice. So we can say that the lamb was going to be forever tied with what? But holiness. Remember the word sacrifice, and it's Latin secum to make holy. The lamb was going to have a very close association with the future vocation of the new Israel in holiness and covenant life with God. And when it comes to the word covenant, I will never presuppose an understanding. Why? Because it's that important. Covenant unlocks the whole Christian mystery. Why? Because what rests at the heart of covenant life is God's own inner life. Remember, the word covenant coming from the Latin convenire, a compact agreement to come together. Well, God elevates this secular sense of how we think about covenant to a family bond where he says, he in me and I in him, in exchange of not things but persons, right? It is not this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. This is what the whole Old and New Testament bear witness to. And ultimately, what rests at the heart of all covenant making is sacrifice. Sacrifice is is one of the most primal forms of worship. This is what obviously comes to us from the Old Testament. As early as the second generation described in Genesis, what do we find but the story of Cain and Abel, the first recorded example of sacrificial offering. If you were to flip your Old Testament to Genesis 4, verses 3 to 4, what do we read? Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And in due time, in Genesis 8, what do we come across? Well, similar burnt offerings from Noah. How about Abraham in Genesis 15, Jacob in Genesis 46, and others? In Genesis, the patriarchs were forever building altars, we could say, as as Scott on likes to talk about it. And altars would serve primarily as places of sacrifice. In addition to burnt offerings, the ancients sometimes would pour, what, libations or sacrificial offerings of wine. There is a richness, my dear friends, to this title Lamb of God. Now, of the sacrifices in Genesis, two deserve our most careful attention, that of Melchizedek and that of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. And once again, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn in the Lamb's Supper goes here. And so it is in Genesis 14 where Melchizedek appears as the first priest mentioned in the Bible. And many Christians following the, the letter to the Hebrews, if you were to go to chapter 7, 1 to 17, have seen him as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, right? Now, what's important for us to understand here is that Melchizedek was just not a priest, but priest and king. An odd combination In the Old Testament, but one that would certainly later be applied to Jesus. Genesis describes Melchizedek as king of Salem, a land that would later become what? Jerusalem, meaning city of peace. Jesus would rise one day as king of the heavenly Jerusalem, and like Melchizedek, the prince of peace. Finally, we could say Melchizedek's sacrifice was extraordinary in that it involved no animals. He offered bread and wine, as Jesus would at the Last Supper when he instituted the Eucharist. Now, what's important for us to understand is, alongside of his relationship with Jesus, is that Melchizedek's sacrifice ended with a blessing upon Abraham. And the second narrative that is so important for us as it relates to the Lamb of God picks up here with Abraham. huh? Because Abraham himself would revisit the site of Salem some years later when God called upon him to make an ultimate sacrifice. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham what? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains. Uh, by way of footnote, Israelite tradition recorded in the Second Chronicles 3.1 identifies Moriah with the future temple site in Jerusalem huh? So it is there where Abraham traveled with Isaac who would carry upon his back the wood for the sacrifice. Now if you were to go to verse 8 something interesting happens huh? Isaac asks his dad where's the victim and what does Abraham reply with? God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son. In the end We know this story, huh? The angel of God did stay Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son and provided a ram to be sacrificed. In this story, Israel would discern God's covenant oath to make Abraham's descendants a mighty nation. We're to go to Genesis 22, verses 16 to 17. What do we read? By myself I have sworn, because you have not withheld your son, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves. That was God's IOU to Abraham, huh? It would also turn out to be Israel's life insurance policy, as Scott Hahn puts it. So it is in the desert of Sinai, when the chosen people earned death by worshiping the golden calf, Moses invoked God's covenant oath to Abraham in order to save them from divine wrath. Christians, all the years later. We look upon this story of Abraham and Isaac as we do today as a profound allegory for the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. I've spoken to this a great number of times. The similarities are many, my friends. First, you have Jesus like Isaac, a faithful father's only beloved son. Again, like Isaac, Jesus carried uphill the wood for his own sacrifice which would be consummated on a hill in Jerusalem. In fact, the site where Jesus died, Calvary, was one of the hillocks on Moriah's Range. Moreover, the very first line of the New Testament identifies Jesus with Isaac as the son of Abraham. To Christian readers, even Abraham's words proved prophetic. And so with that, my dear friends, honing in on the importance Of John's words that we heard today, behold the Lamb of God. Recall that there was no punctuation in the Hebrew original and consider an alternate reading of verse 8. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The lamb, my dear friends, foreshadowed, of course, was Jesus Christ, God himself, that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. Mm, mm, mm. Remember, the word in the Hebrew for provide is Jeru. Okay, Salem becomes Jerusalem uh, to the extent that we see Jerusalem becoming the place where God would consummate his relationship with man, where God would give his only beloved son to the world as a ransom for their sin. So it is. In light of everything we have talked about up to this point, there is a reason why John did not use such words as uh, Messiah, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord, Savior, but Lamb of God. Because in that phrase, in that title, the whole Old Testament is caught up in, to the extent that we see the Old Testament as a series of liturgical sacrificial documents For the Baptist to say, behold the Lamb of God, is for the Baptist to say, look, there is the fulfillment of every sacrificial and prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. That is the place where our hearts rejoice. That is the place where we see the fulfillment of every hope and every dream. This is what we are made to see. And what else can we say? What does our Lord himself say in John 6? Remember, in John 6, five chapters later, after we just read about the Lamb of God, do we have our Lord uh, speaking of this need to eat of his flesh, drink of his blood? Well, this makes no sense unless he is the Lamb of God, unless he's the new Isaac who is pouring himself out for man. I mean, if you were to go to John chapter 6, I believe it is verse 54, what do we read? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The significance of this verse, specifically in the term eats, uh, the translation trogo is chew or gnaw, specific to chewing or gnawing on animal stock. What our Lord wants us to see in this verse is that he is the Lamb of God, who we are called upon to chew and to gnaw. And we do so in the Eucharist because it is in the Eucharist that we receive each and every time we go to Mass that we chew and gnaw on the Lamb of God, the Lamb that comes to us in the form of a host. But once consecrated becomes that very offering that Jesus Christ himself offered to the Father 2,000 years ago. The priest is in persona Christi offering up to the Father that very sacrifice of two thousand years ago, making present that very sacrifice, my dear friends, remember those words from Christ at the institution of the Eucharist: "Do this in remembrance of me." He didn't say, "Write this." He said, "Do this." And when he said, "Do this," what he was actualizing was the New Testament. Remember what he says in Mark fourteen twenty-four: "This is the blood of the new covenant." Oh, covenant translates diatheke testamentum testament in essence what he's saying there in mark 14:24 that paul echoes is this is the blood of the new testament the eucharist that is the flesh of the lamb of god is the new testament and how about that that we would hear from john those words behold the lamb of god that at the end of the gospel of mark we would hear that being echoed behold the lamb of god from the very mouth of Christ. Because Christ, as the Lamb of God, is absolutely central to the New Testament message, because it is the Eucharist that transforms. The Eucharist is the good news, is the Evangelion, because it literally transforms us. And isn't it a fascinating truth that comes to us today? If you were to take inventory into the number of priests across the world, you would come up with a number, roughly 436, give or take several hundred, okay? If you were to do your math, what would that give you? Well, that means when you break it down to seconds and minutes and hours, if every priest says Mass every day, that every second, four hosts are being consecrated. So when Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, the apostles took that seriously? And under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, would those words be actualized up to today four times every second? Huh? I believe that to be a most fascinating truth. A truth that brings us back to the heart of today's gospel reading. Why? Because when John says, Behold the Lamb of God, he sets our whole attention to what rests at the heart of the gospel message that is, Jesus Christ incarnate, who has come as the Lamb of God, who has come as the final sacrifice, the sacrifice that would consummate covenant life with God. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.